Leela Higgins, thanks for being on the program today. No problem. Now, now, what exactly do you do at the Natural History Museum? And what makes you an expert in bee parasites? Um, well, I am the manager of citizen science here at the Natural History Museum. And I know about bee parasites mostly because I, um, I, I helped to get start the Zombie Watch project here at the museum. And that project is something that started at San Francisco State University with John Haffernick, and I met him at a conference and heard about the project. I was like, we have to partner, we have to be involved. And then when I found out <laughs> our scientist was the actual, our scientist, our entomologist, Dr. Brian Brown, was the, the person who identified the zombie fly, then I was like, oh, we, this, is, this is like a no-brainer. We have to do this. You have to be involved. Now, let me just, for people listening, this is ZOM, Z-O-M, and then B-E-E. So we're talking about zombies as they relate to honeybees, correct? Yes. Uh, great TED Talk online about this um, with, uh, what's the, the, with the San Francisco group who started the whole thing. Yeah, John Haffernick. John Haffernick, yes. Great TED Talk with him explaining all this stuff. So we're going to talk about a couple parasites, but I just wanted just to kind of preface this for everyone listening. Imagine if you're a bee, it really sucks to be a bee right now because essentially every horror movie that I grew up on, uh, which is fantasy, obviously, it's a movie, is an actual reality for um, bees right now, especially honeybees. I mean, you know, some of these things have characteristics of zombies, vampires, of the alien movies, all this stuff wrapped into one. Uh, it sucks out there, Leela. Do you know what I mean? Uh, it's, when, I, when I imagine being a bee... Um, in these situations with, you know, mites that are in your trachea or mites sucking your blood from the outside (laughs) or a zombie fly laying its eggs inside of you and then turning you into a zombie and you leave your hive at night. It's really kind of crazy. It's so nuts. It is. That's, I mean, I'm so glad nothing like this exists for human beings Uh, or does it? Who knows? Um, um, there's there's lots of crazy human parasites. I've there was a book that I used to tote around in college, tropical parasites and diseases that had some really scary pictures in it. <laughs> well, let's let's not scare listeners too much. <laughs> uh, now let's so let's first talk about the zombie fly, which in actuality I I want to take issue with the name. I know it's very fancy and fun, but there's nothing. There's no these things aren't raised from the dead, and it doesn't kill them and bring them back to life. This is more akin to uh, the movie Alien or Aliens, um, and the zombie flies similar to the face hugger. Uh, so colloquially, I'm going to say these things land and basically inject their eggs via an ovipositor. Look who did their homework uh, into the bee. Can you explain this in much more scientific terms? Um, yeah. So a female zombie fly, um, Epicephalus borealis, they go around, find a bee, and they have, it is like, it's basically like a hypodermic needle. Um, they're closely related to stingers, so the ovipositor uh, in honeybees became a stinger. So, you know, we're familiar with stingers. Mm-hmm. Just think about it now as an as a egg-laying device. And the female fly will lay its egg inside of the honeybee. Now, this isn't like the penguin, like March the Penguins or anything. Like, the bee doesn't just hang on to the the eggs and take care of them and then get rid of them later. 
the eggs are inside the bee at this point. Um, we don't know. We haven't been able to talk to the bees, obviously, but does the sure. bee know that it's got an egg inside of it? But at a certain point after the egg hatches and the fly is eating the bee from the inside, there has to be some sort of level of discomfort and some sort of level of, like, not feeling good. And, um, you know, the bees start to leave their hives during the night, which is uncommon for bees, and they're attracted to light at night. And so they'll be found under porch lights, and you'll see them writhing around on the ground. You'll see them kind of like staggering around. Um, and again, there's a fly inside eating its insides, or multiple flies. And then when those flies, the maggots, are ready to emerge, they come like erupt out of the neck region of the <laughs> of the honeybee. Insane. And then they crawl around, and then they turn into little brown pupae kind of like pill-shaped pupae, um, you know, not not very big, a couple millimeters long. Um, and then 15 to 28 days later, they'll, 28 days later. Yeah, boom, I was um, just going to say, you beat turn, me to it. <laughs> they turn into adult flies. <laughs> How appropriate. That is, that's insane. Now, is there any reason why they're attracted to light? Um, we're know? not exactly sure. Uh, again, usually honeybees do not leave their hives at night. And, uh, you know, that they're in their hive, they're safe with their sisters, um, you know, and the drones too. But, um, yeah, they leave their hive at night and not exactly sure why they would, they would be attracted to light. But it works out for um, citizen scientists who want to help to be zombie hunters um, because you can make light traps. And that way you can see if there are zombie bees in your yard in your neighborhood <clears throat> and help scientists to figure out if if they're if they're spreading. So right now we don't have them in Los Angeles, but we've been looking. The wow. furthest south they've got in California that we've recorded is Santa Barbara. Oh wow. Come wait, so where are they coming from? Um where are they coming from is a is a bigger question. They were first discovered at uh San Francisco State by John Hafenick and it's actually a pretty funny story that he told me. Um, he was walking into campus. He like would get there early so he could get like a cheap parking spot on the on the road. And then he would walk into campus and then he started noticing bees like under the light wells on his way in. And there was a bee that wasn't fully dead. And so he, as all good entomologists do, had a little plastic container in his pocket, <laughs> yeah. pulled it out. Yep. Um, put the bee in there and was going to feed it to his praying mantis on his desk. He got into his desk. He f kind of forgot about what was going on, um, forgot about the bee. A couple of days later, he looks at it and sees things in the vial with the bee, and he's like, what? This is interesting. And, you know, he he looks at and up close, realizes it's some kind of fly, realizes it's probably a forward fly, and then so sends those fly samples to Dr. Brian Brown, our um, entomologist here at the museum, because he's like literally one of the world's leading forward fly experts. And Brian identifies them, finds out they're Apocephalus borealis, and that this is, you know, the first time it's been documented that these parasites have been moved over to honeybees as a host. They have been known in 
um, other uh, like bumblebees here in North America and paper wasps, but they'd never been known in honeybees before. Now, what causes something like this, uh, a pre- um, I guess a parasite, to switch hosts? That's a really good question. Another thing that we don't exactly know the answer to. Um, but there's just a lot of things that have uh, started to happen with the honeybees. You know, we, we hear about honeybees and colony collapse disorder all the time on the news. Um, and so there's just a lot more things that have been uh, problems that the honeybees are having to, to start to deal with, all these different kinds of mites that are um, becoming prevalent and viruses. And and so, yeah, the, the honeybees are having a hard time of it right now they're targeted well so let me just really quickly last thing on the zombie fly i just want to postulate with you for a second here from an evolutionary standpoint why do these types of uh insects develop these kind of um a parasitic insect like this i mean is it because something that small seeks you know it's it's a predator in some ways uh and is it less and does it take less energy to inject to not attack the bee and kill it outright but instead to inject your larvae in it so that they can feed on it does that take less energy because there's such a huge size difference between these two animals is that why something like this would develop um honestly it's just you know exploiting uh food sources and and different niches and you know we all we i say we all but all these creatures on earth have to and plants too have to you know basically make a living and so over time as you're saying evolutionarily speaking we just all these different creatures start exploiting in different ways and if there's a resource that's available to be exploited as food that's that's what's going to happen so bee meat is a resource and someone's got to eat it is what you're saying <laughs> That, I, I wouldn't put it. <laughs> you that said it. Way. Your words, <laughs> not mine. Your words. <laughs> uh, well, so now let's move on. So we got bee meat out of the way, but there's plenty of bee blood, which I believe is called hemolymph. Am I saying that correctly? Hemolymph. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about uh, voramites, whose scientific name, if this doesn't tell you what these things are all about, it's vora destructor. Um, tell me a little bit about these guys. Yeah. So voramites. Um basically will feed on the hemolymph they will attach to the body of the bee and feed on the and put their mouth parts in between kind of the segments of the of the bee um where the where the um exoskeleton's thin and will suck out the juices and feed on the uh the hemolymph and so the way a insect body is set up is very different than our human body um, we have a closed circulatory system. They have an open circulatory system. So basically they have like kind of like a, a tube along the, the their back, along their dorsal, dorsal side with a heart, and then it pumps blood from the tail end to the head end. And But it, it's basically just a pool of blood inside the insect. And so it's really easy for these mites and other creatures that um, feed on other insect blood to kind of just... Tap in. Put a straw like in there, yeah. A, <laughs> tapping into a uh, maple tree. <laughs> <laughs> or an oil well. Um, now, these things have a very insidious side besides that. Uh, you know, it's amazing how nature develops. So the way I understand this correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, is basically when these things are reproducing, and they reproduce on a 10-day cycle, um, 
they go into the actual cell where the larva is developing um, and kind of live with the larva and develop with the larva and then come out with a fully created worker bee or drone. Is that right? So, yeah, and sometimes it's it's more than one mite per brood cell, and that's when things are really bad for the bees. If it's just one varroa mite per brood cell, sometimes the honey, the, the beekeeper won't even realize that uh, they're um, kind of having, they're, they're, they've been infected, so to speak, um, and their lifespan will be shorter, but it won't necessarily, um, like, it won't have, like, de- like de- de- deformed wings or something like that, hmm, which it. It, they they will likely have if there's multiple um, multiple mites in each of the brood cells. And, you know, a honeybee only lives about five to seven weeks. You know, it's not a long hmm. life lifetime. Right. Um, and so, you know, we have we have all these kind of conceptions about bees, but then when we look at it, like they literally only live five to seven weeks and, you know, bees are being taken out and the corpses are being removed. The the bees are, are you know, trying to keep a really clean high when they're really healthy. And so they will, um, you know, take the dead bees out and they'll put them like there's basically honeybee graveyards around beehives. And so those, those are very common things. Um, but uh, it's just not something we usually think about. No, it definitely isn't. I was watching some video on some of these things, uh, and especially the voromites. You know, I, I got to tell you, it would be difficult for me to be a scientist. I love science, but especially with stuff <laughs> like this, which interests me, it would be hard to stick a bee inside of like a jar with either voromites or um, or the zombie fly or even tracheomites, which we're about to get to, um, and let them infect them on purpose and then you know, kind of look at the result uh, that just kind of messes with me. But I was watching this video uh, where some, they had a, you know, there's a bee inside of a jar and there were voramites and there were four or five or six of these things and they were just pursuing the bee exactly like a pack of wolves or zombies or whatever, like fresh or vampires even. These things are more akin to vampires. It was pretty scary stuff. Yeah, I mean, science is, is you know, not always pretty. Um, but if we want to help to figure out what is actually going on, you know, how long it takes these mites to develop, what they're actually doing, what their effects are going to be on honeybee populations, then these kind of experiments need to happen. And, you know, the pollination services that honeybees provide worldwide are like in the hundreds of billions of dollars um, if we put a, had to put an economic value to to it. So, it's really Im- important thing for us to to look at, and uh, again, scientists have to have to figure these things out. Got to do the dirty work sometimes. Yep. Uh, all right, so let's get to um, our final parasite, which is tracheal mites. Now, while this shares um, a name with voromites, these things are actually to make this even scarier to those listening. Um, if you have you have a sensitive stomach. You may want to turn, or arachnophobia, you might want to turn this thing off right now. But these things are spiders, right? These are arachnids. These aren't insects, correct? Um, yeah, so both the varroa mite and the tracheal mite are, again, mites. So they're in the arachnid group. Um, and oh, I didn't realize that. Var- varroa mites are arachnids as well? Yep. Oh. Um, yeah, they're not spiders because, you know, in the arachnid group, there's spiders, scorpions, oh, a whole bunch sure. of different creatures. Mites, mites are in there too. Um, uh, so yeah, they're 
they're all in the same group. Okay. Um, well, so these things these things hang out in the basically the throat of the bee. Is that correct? In in the trachea, which so again, insects really different than humans. Um, but it's so much fun to anthropomorphize we, them, though. Yeah, but it's really it's really <laughs> cool to like to like figure out the differences because sure. again, this isn't something that most people think about. Right. So the way we breathe, we breathe in through our lungs, right, and then the oxygen go is exchanged um, into our blood system and carried around through the blood. But again, the bees have this open circulatory system, right, and so they're they've decoupled. They don't have the um, circulatory system and the um, getting oxygen to the cells, it's, it's two different systems. And so they have these little tiny holes along the side of their body, insects do, including honeybees, that have their little openings called spiracles, and the oxi- gas and oxygen goes in through those little holes and then go down through um, the body and keep branching, and then the gas can exchange at the cellular level that way. And so they, And then they can basically, it's like exhaling, um, the CO2 comes back out through the same tubes and then comes out those little holes along the side of the body. And so it's almost like they have multiple throats, so to speak. And so, yeah, you these these mites, you know, and some of these honeybees can have hundreds of, of mites in each, in, in their bodies. Yeah, Hundreds? Oh, my God. Crazy, right? Yes. I mean, they're tiny. These mites are, are like really small yeah well they have to be to be in the trachea of a honeybee it's really small and so what do these things do in there they're um they're about 1.5 times the diameter of human hair apparently oh wow that's that is small uh and so so these things so they're all attaching to the the walls of their tracheal apparatus um is that a word did i just make that up is that a real thing (laughs) I think yeah, it's an apparatus. Okay. <laughs> so the females go in and they lay they lay eggs in there, um, and you know multiple eggs sometimes, and then the they hatch inside the trachea, and then they basically also feed on the hemolymph, doing the same. They have these like, piercing mouth parts. Um, and then they, they, they do the same thing as the varroa mites, but except they're inside the body of the bee feeding on the, the hemolymph through the, the wall of the um, trachea. You know, mouth parts is such a weird word because it conjures up, you know, it is, <laughs> it's very much like the thing, you know, like it's, it's kind of mouth, you know, they're, they're, it's mouth related, but they're parts. It's very insect-like. Whenever I hear that, I always think of very scary feeding apparatus, you know? Well, you know, honeybees have um, really interesting mouth parts, and so we call them bee tongues. So it's it's almost like they have like a tongue for lapping up the uh, nectar. Mm-hmm. And when bees die, they often die with their mouth parts out. So you can see them, and it, and it helps to identify the bees. Oh, okay. They're, they're, they, you know, we we imagine we we have a visual in our head of what a um, butterfly mouth parts look like. That coiled proboscis mm. is like one of those weird party blowers that kind of unfurls. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like we can visualize that, but then like asking people to visualize honeybee mouth parts, mm. honeybee tongues, they're like, what? Just go Google it. <laughs> okay. No, that's fair. I'll, you know what? I'm going to put a picture up. I'm going to save people a step. I'm going to put a picture up. Nice. Of bee tongues. <laughs> and mouth parts. 
Um, you know what's kind of funny now that I'm thinking about it? You know, we, it seems awful for these mites to be sucking the hemolymph out of the, the basic blood, the life essence of a bee. But in reality, doesn't isn't that what a bee does to a flower? I mean, aren't they sucking the, the flower lymph from the, the nectar? You know, that's kind of the same thing, isn't it? Um, so, I mean, there's this, uh, this amazing relationship that's kind of developed, uh, over time between flowers and, uh, bees, specifically honeybees and, but, you know, the pollinating bees, um, the, the flower gets a service. It's not like the bees doing it on purpose. Like, oh, I'm going to help this flower by pollinating it. It's kind of like the flower, the flower has, uh, over time been like, through evolution, been able to capitalize on these bees coming to them, providing them a tasty, sweet snack, and then also getting pollinated at the same time, as opposed to having to be pollinated by the wind. Um, So it's really cool when you think about it in that kind of like long-term, deep-time sense. Yeah, it's like you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You know, here's a little treat. Um, Here, take my pollen to the next flower. Except Except it's not like... Our human brains have to think about it in kind of like that term, but it's yeah. like it's almost like not conscious, right? Sure, yeah. It's like getting a tip for being a courier, but they don't know that they don't know that they're tipping, and the other the bee doesn't know he's the courier. Yeah, but then there are some bees who will. Um, I don't believe this is honeybees, but there are other species of like native bees uh, that will kind of like bypass the regular route of going to the flower opening and will like chew a hole in the side and get the nectar from underneath. I think they call it bee robbing or something. Um, Oh. uh, Nectar robbing. And then they don't, so then they don't get pollen on them. Oh, wow. That's so messed up. What? It's like such a hard, those are like thug bees, like who want something for nothing. You know what I mean? Like, you know, that there's, there's a system in place, you know, it's, it's developed over millions of years. Why are you going, why are you spending so much time getting nectar for free when all you have to do is put pollen on you? That's crazy. Well, that absolutely again, upsets me. Like, <laughs> um, but okay, that something to make you maybe less upset. There's also um, certain flowers that need to have a certain um, frequency uh, of sound of, or vibration around them to let their pollen go. And so I think I've seen it with a tuning fork on a specific flower, and you. you I think it's middle C tuning fork and you put it and then like the pollen like kind of like just pops off and that's the same uh, vibrational frequency that a certain bee will have when it goes to the flower. So that's pretty cool. That is really cool actually. Um, you know, this bees are amazing creatures. We could talk all day about bees. This is really incredible stuff. Um, a little tidbit for the mind, a little nectar for the mind, if you will, uh, for people <laughs> listening. And you want to go out and, and learn more about this. This is incredible stuff. Um, so, Leela, let's, let's talk. If people want to get in, if you want to be a zombie hunter, how do you do this? Where do people find you? Where do people find this organization? How can they help? So um, here in L.A., you can go to the Natural History Museum's uh, website. And we have a whole section for citizen science and we've got a whole section for Zombie Watch. Um, we're like a hub for Zombie Watch down here in L.A. Like I said, we have not found zombie uh, um, zombies down here yet, but uh, we will definitely want to be on the pulse and know if they expand their range down here. Um, so you can go to our website. You can also go to the Zombie Watch website. 
Um, there's information on how to participate, uh, what materials you might need, what to do if you find a zombie uh, bee that's acting weirdly, like i.e. underneath your porch light, writhing around on the sidewalk, walking in circles. These are all things that zombies do. And then how to collect them safely because a zombified um, honeybee can still sting you. So we all recommend using tweezers. You put it into a vial. You uh, then watch it over the next couple weeks and to see if anything emerges. Take pictures, upload them to the website, and then your data point will then go on to the zombie watch map. And it's really important to know if you find if we if you find a bee that doesn't get any parasites out of them. Some people are like, oh well, you know, it, it wasn't parasitized by. Um, zombie flies, then I don't need to put anything in. But the the, the zero data, the I found mm -hmm. a bee, but it didn't have any zombie flies in it. Mm -hmm. That's really important data to have too, because we need to know where the zombie flies aren't, as well as the, where the zombie flies are. Um, so the, that's the importance of, of zeros in data, which us as scientists are all like, zero data is important too. <laughs> right, not just the good stuff, not just the, the yeah. sexy dramatic stuff. You need the, the yeah. boring stuff too. Right? That's science. You need it all. Science. You need it all. Leela Higgins of the Natural History Museum here at Los Angeles. Thanks for being on the program. You're welcome. And, and I want to thank everyone for listening.